want to continue tonight. Um, what we talked about this morning, and I'm going to entitle our message as we uh, prepare for the Lord's Supper, Good Swearing and Bad Swearing, Part 2. Listen to what uh, Paul says in Ephesians 4.29. Let no corrupt word proceed out of your mouth, but what is good for necessary edification, that it may impart grace to the hearers, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Don't let any corrupt word proceed out of your mouth. Well, what's a corrupt word? The word corrupt means rotten. Um, you get a little more clarity when you keep reading in Ephesians chapter 5. And it's talking here about this great contrast between light and darkness. Christians should think in terms of antithesis a lot. Opposites. God's side over here. The devil's side over here. They should ter- think in terms of great contrast a lot. Light and darkness. And this is true when it comes to evil speech. Our unclean speech. Here's what the Bible says in Ephesians chapter 5. Um, fornication, verse 3. Fornication, all uncleanness, covetousness. Let it not even be named among you as is fitting for saints, neither filthiness nor foolish talking, nor coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. Now, what's wrong with, with coarse jesting? What's wrong with foolish talking? Well, other than the fact that the Bible here says it's wrong, what is it that makes it wrong? And our, why do we call, when you make a high promise and you call upon God to witness that promise, you call that swearing? And why is it that when you use, or one uses foul language or filthy language, or a ba- it's, it's, an, it's, a, it's a bad euphemism, but bathroom humor or dirty talk. Why is that also called swearing? We'll talk about that here tonight, and I want to show you from the Bible why that's also called swearing. But now before we continue to look at Ephesians 5, let no one, this is Ephesians 5, 60. I want to read the rest of this because the contrast comes out so clearly. This is what we have in our heart. It's like, whose side are you on? What side are you on? It's, are you on the dark side? Are you on the light side? Are you on God's side or are you on the devil's side? Well, one of the ways we can tell is what comes out of your mouth and uh, what comes out of my mouth. Verse 8, we were once darkness, but now we are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the Spirit is all goodness, righteousness, and truth, finding out what is acceptable to the Lord. Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. It's shameful even to speak of those things which are done by them in secret. But all things are, that are exposed are made manifest by the light, for whatever makes manifest is light. Therefore, he says, Awake you who sleep, arise from the dead, and, and Christ will give you light. See then that you walk circumspectly or carefully, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time, because the days are evil. And then it goes on to giving thanks and being filled with the Holy Spirit. You see the contrast? Filthy talk, foolish talk, profane talk, slick talk, they're all dark side talk. And we shouldn't have anything to do with that. But what is it that makes profane... For instance, you can understand, if a person used the Lord's name in vain, it would be clear why that was wrong. Because you're profaning the name of God. Or if they said the word damn or hell in a wrong way, the reason those are wrong is because they're profane. Because to condemn someone is a very serious... That's, God, that's biblical talk. Hell is a real place, a place of condemnation. So to use damn or hell or God or Jesus or short versions of those words and be, to be, is to be irreverent. So it's kind of obvious why those words are wrong to try to strengthen your, 
conversation by throwing those words in because they're profane talk. They're blasphemous talk. They're taking high and holy things and then they're dragging them down. I think we can all agree why those are bad words. But why would the other words that people tend to use? They used to work at a place called the Union City Body Company. And this was in the summertime. And they had a place where they dipped parts in this CAD plating. And it was a hot place. It was the place where I think they sent college boys just to kind of limber them up a tad. And so uh, the guys that worked there were a rogues gallery, a lewd bunch. They said things I hadn't ever even heard before. And they were just foul guys and, and filthy. And by the time you got done, and maybe some of you men and women, you know, God bless you and help you. If you work in a setting like that, it's just like a bath in the sewer all day long. And they were just like, they were, there was nothing sacred to those men. There was nothing high, nothing beautiful, nothing off limits, nothing you couldn't talk about with, with a profane talk. And then there was a place they transferred me for a couple of weeks to cover for other guys' vacations. And I think you had to be, you had to have been there for a while to work regularly in this place where they prepared trucks for delivery. And the guys there were civil. They weren't like Baptists or anything, but they were civil. They actually had a little pool of money. They put money in and, and they bought coffee for one another. And their, their words were less offensive than the other guys. I've often uh, thought about that. And I, I remember as a young man working there for a number of summers at the Union City Body Company thinking if a guy can live for the Lord in a setting like this, he can live for the Lord anywhere because it's such a dark place. And I know that, and that's what a lot of you, a number of you are going to a place like that tomorrow morning. And you're going to work with people who really spend more more time on the dark side than they do on the light side. But what concerns me now is our professing Christians whose conversation is not appropriate to their place in the body of Christ. Children of light. That's what concerns me. Even Christian leaders, pastors now, it's popular. You can, I wouldn't recommend that you do it, but you can go on YouTube and click on YouTube and you can find guys that have made holy vows before God, ordination vows to honor the name of Jesus Christ using street language and gutter language and filthy language. And I want to talk here tonight about why that's bad and why that's wrong. Biblically, why is that? And to do that, I want you to take your Bibles and look in Hebrews chapter 6 and, and you're going to see where the two kinds of swearing go together and they, 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 they will they will uh, propel us towards the uh, high and the holy uh, ordinance of God, the Lord's uh, Supper. Realizing the evil roots of swearing and how perverted they are will help us to understand why we use the term swearing for dirty speech. I, I feel like this truth is something that may set some of you free tonight. I don't know who you are, but there are probably some of you tonight And I wouldn't want you to just like openly indicate unless the Lord led you to do it, that dirty speech is a problem for you. When you're in private or when you're in your family or when you're among lost people, words come out that shouldn't come out of the mouth of a Christian person. And for some of you, maybe some young people, the question in your mind is, well, why is this particular word dirty? Why is this particular word bad? What makes that word bad? And and that's what I want to clarify here tonight. Why do we call the use of sexual terms, excremental terms, bathroom humor, or terms of sexual perversion, why, what, what makes those particularly bad? I want you to notice that Hebrews chapter 6 
speaks about swearing in the high and holy way. Verse 13, when God made a promise to Abraham, for when God made a promise to Abraham. Now, you understand, this is a reference to what? The Abrahamic covenant in, in Genesis 12. This is big, high, important, holy stuff. This is the storyline of the Bible, the covenant promise that God had made to Abraham. When God made a promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. The greatest one to swear by or promise by is the highest and the ultimate authority in all of the universe, whoever was or ever will be, and that is to God for, for God to swear by Himself. Saying, surely blessing, I will bless you, and multiplying, I will multiply you. And so after He had patiently endured, He obtained the promise. There it is again, the word, the word promise. The word covenant is often used. For men indeed swear by the greater and an oath for confirmation is for them an end of all dispute. This is why we go to court and we say, do you solemnly swear? And they put their hand on a Bible. Is a, is symbolically, they're before God. They're saying, before God, I am telling the truth. It's solemn swearing. And he says, this is to end disputes. God swears by himself because there is none greater. And we swear by God because holy people light-walking people see God as the ultimate thing to swear by or to promise. We're conscious of God watching over all of our promises and all of our words. Then we have verse 17, Thus God determining to show more abundantly to the heirs of the promise the immutability, the unchangeableness of His counsel confirmed it by an oath. That by two immutable or unchanging things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, which enters the presence behind the veil where the forerunner has entered for us, even Jesus, having become the high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. That's pretty exciting stuff, isn't it? Here, here the writer of Hebrews is calling on the highest and the holiest truths and verities and symbols in order to say this is reverence, this is right, and these are the things that God has promised, and these are the things before which we make our promises. So, over on the light side, if you will, you have people that speak conscious of the fact that God is hearing everything they say, weighing every promise, that there's nothing higher that one can swear to than God Himself. So what would you expect to find over here on the dark side? Well, you'd find a zoo of filthy things. You would find people who intentionally profane the precious name of the Lord Jesus Christ. You would find people who intentionally profane the things of the Lord which are beautiful and should only be spoken of in a high and holy manner. You would find that, but then you would find people that go even lower than that. It's one thing to take the name of God as if you have some reverence or you recognize some weight to the name of God and to use it for your own dirty purposes. It's another thing to discard the name of God and to substitute for the name of God something else that's filthy. Sexual language, excremental language, language of sexual perversion, which we won't go into detail. I don't think we need to go into detail. But when people go to that side, can you tell me how many of you would want to say that's the light side talk? No, that's the dark side talk. It's as far as you can get away from you to, than speaking in reference to the presence of God and our accountability to God and the holiness of God. We have people over here who disregard God and who they don't even use God's name on anymore. They call on filthy things, the 
you know, it's, it, again, it's not a, a strong enough term to use bathroom humor. But that's what happened. When I was a boy, I was third grade at 10, about 10, and uh, every once in a while we will interview, almost every other week or so, we'll interview little children who've made a profession of faith, and we talk to them about their conscience, about their sin, and about the way to be free from their sin. It's one of the sweetest responsibilities that we as pastors and deacons have is to hear these little ones speaking of how they're catechized and the things of the Lord. I always ask them about their sin because I remember so profoundly being that age and having great guilt on my heart. I mean, we lived in Springfield, uh, Ohio, or excuse Springfield, uh, Michigan. It's a suburb of Battle Creek at the time. And I went to school and I began to be influenced. My parents don't know this. They won't until they hear this message tonight. But I began to pick up on the language of my peers when I was in the third grade. For a few weeks' time, I, I, I said words I shouldn't, knew were wrong. And, and more often, these words would come to my mind. And they troubled my conscience as a young boy. My parents had taught me well, and they, they, they themselves never used inappropriate speech of any kind. And, and it would be the rarest thing for either of my parents to slip and for a word to come out from their past. And they would immediately make that right. I could probably count on the fingers of one hand the time either of my parents said a word that was inappropriate. And then it was with the most grief and asking forgiveness. And because of years of not walking with the Lord before they were saved. But I remember as a boy just being troubled in my conscience, just bothered and troubled and grieved and heavy-hearted and thinking about these words that I would say from time to time on the playground that would come to my mind privately. And as a boy, I listened to my dad's preaching and I thought, I need to pray that God takes this away from me. And so I prayed as a little boy, laying on my bed, God, please take away these words from me. And within a few weeks, he took them away forever. And they've never come back. I wish all of my struggles were that simple and clean. I'm afraid they're not. And I have sympathy for you tonight. If you, because you live in a dark world, full of people that are on the dark side, you have allowed them to influence you. Wouldn't it be wonderful tonight, as you approach the Lord's table, God did a thorough cleansing work in your tongue and would give you a clean heart and a clean tongue. And your testimony would be purer than it ever was before. And you could pillow your head at night with a sense of peace that God delivered you from that. This is what's going on. When people use excremental terms, sexual terms, or blasphemous terms, they're calling on something low instead of calling on something high, as it says in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 16. God wants people, He draws people into covenant promises and swearing, the right kind of swearing. And so obviously Satan has a substitute for anything like that. He wants you to get involved in low kind of swearing, frivolous swearing, filthy talk. Does this make sense why coarse jesting is blasphemous talk? No matter if it's excremental humor, sexual humor, or blasphemous humor, it's still profane because it's trying to strengthen your words. Instead of the way that God said to strengthen your words by a consciousness that you're speaking before a holy God, you're trying to strengthen your language by calling on things that are filthy. And this shows that it exposes our rebel hearts. It exposes that we've been influenced by people who are rebels against God. 
You may be here tonight thinking, well, you know, I'm not a rebel against God. I love God. Well, then, friend, I just want to ask you, why then do you speak as one whose heart is in rebellion against God? And how long will it be before, if you've allowed the world to influence the way you talk, the world is going to influence the way you live? You ought to tremble in fear about that tonight and ask God to do a thorough work in you. In other words, like I did when I was a third grade boy, you should go home with a troubled spirit tonight and you should ask God to deliver you. And it would be wonderful if you would ask God, deliver me. And it's not right, James, the pastor of the Jerusalem Church, said it's not right for the same mouth to bring forth cursing and blessing. You're a Christian. Your mouth should bring forth blessing. If you curse, you should curse very carefully and very wisely. Jesus did that. There were times when Jesus delivered a stinging rebuke. And He was right for doing that and completely pure and completely holy. But you should be extremely careful. So don't ever forget how contagious that sin can be. Don't ever forget how deadly the human heart is. How perfectly suited, how a perfectly suited host our heart is for that disease to grow. And don't be pulled down in any way into the degenerate, degraded forms of swearing that come when people blasphemously reject Christ or His name. Does you see more clearly now why dirty talk is called swearing? Is it's a substitute for the high and the holy swearing that God wants His people to do. Coming to worship like you did this morning and, and the singing and the songs and the stringed instruments and stirring up your heart for pure, things that are pure and right and holy should make you be so thrilled with the beauty of Christ that you make Him promises. And those promises before God you delightfully keep. God, I, I'm going to get up in the morning and I'm going to spend some time with you. I just want you to know that. And then you're not going to miss that appointment with Him because He's precious to you. That's what we do with our wives. We, we bind them to promises. We draw them on. We say, Thursday night, sweetheart, I have reservations. And we're going to go out for dinner. And then you look in her eyes and you reach across the table and you, you hold her hand. And you, you remind her you're going to be there until your heart stops beating. Because her beauty and her winsomeness, they've drawn you to make promises to her. How much more should it be with our beautiful Christ that we would desire to make promises to Him? And how much the evil one would like to draw us down into the sewer of our world so that we talk frivolously or filthy or dirty or we use sexual references or, God forbid, even sexual perversion references. That ought to scare us. That ought to, that ought to cause us to have the fear of God. That in a church like this, there are many people who do not talk like Christians when they're outside of the church, and sometimes even when they're in the church. So this should fright. This should. This should. There's one more thing I. I was taught as a boy, and I, and I just think I'm on good footing. I just want to share it tonight. And that is um, that Christian people, if you want to go to the, the light side and be completely away from the dark side, then you don't want to go anywhere in between and get into substitute swearing, right? Wouldn't you, wouldn't you just want to stay over here on this side and don't say any words that are replacements for the name of our precious Savior, the Lord Jesus? I mean, doesn't, doesn't it make sense? Let's talk to this boy. I think it's right. If I, if I say G and I stop, isn't that really just a substitute for the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus? If I say gosh and I stop, I was a boy and I was playing... High, uh, playing church league basketball, and my dad was the new pastor, and they 
they called me and they said, hey, how would you like to come and play some basketball? And I said, sure. I, I used to use the term shoot. It was an expletive. Oh, shoot, you know, I would say. And uh, so I was playing basketball and I, I missed, which I usually did. And then I started to say shoot. And I thought, I better not say that because they might misunderstand me. So it ended up sounding like, ah, shh. And then I stopped. And then everything got really quiet. Everybody looked at the new pastor's kid like, hmm. And I'm probably discredited my dad's ministry to some degree. And uh, to some degree, I wanted to live long enough that I could show that I believe what my dad taught and his God and that I followed my dad's God and uh, spoke with respect about my dad's God. And so I would just suggest that you stay as far away from the dark side as you can and that you remove from your language any substitute swearing, sometimes called minced oaths, because they're just substitutes for the names that are holy to us and that are high and that are reverent. And I, I just suggest that, that, that you're a child of the light and you should never adopt the language of the sons of disobedience or the workers of disobedience because that's a tragic thing and you shouldn't even come close. And so when is swearing good and when is swearing bad? I think I've made that clear. Swearing is good when consciously before God on a high and holy occasion like a marriage, I would say I call on God to witness the vows that I'm about to take here. They are for life before my God I speak. And that should be very serious. When a man is ordained to the ministry or when a person takes an oath of office. Um, the, the oaths and promises that people make in marriage and in civil government are the glue of a culture. And when a culture is in rebellion against God, then our, our promises mean nothing to us. They're light to us. That's dark side. That's not light side. So what is good swearing? Good swearing is promise keeping before God. Bad swearing is calling on the name of God or other dirty things in place of the name of God to strengthen our speech. But good swearing is calling on God to witness our promises and keeping promises and being the kind of people who claim the promises of God and who make promises in, and before the Lord. The pastor whose sister got cancer and she knew that she hadn't long to live. And she was a radiant Christian woman and people loved her. And from all over, people over the years, she had given people gifts and they gave her gifts. And she was a conscientious Christian and so whenever someone gave her a gift, she would remember the occasion she would make a note on that gift, whether it was a vase or a photo, photo frame or something. She would make a note on the back of the photo frame of who gave it to her and when and what the occasion was. And so when it came time for her to pass on to be with the Lord, she went through a, an exercise with her friends that she called her friends one at a time and asked them to come and visit her. And she gave each of them their gift back. And she said, I won't be able to Use your gift anymore, because I'm going to be with the Lord. And I want you to know how much I've appreciated your gift. And I want to give it back to you, and I want you to keep it, so that you can remember how much I appreciated it, and how much I love you. And her brother apologized for her. He said, I'm sorry. I mean, we were raised better than that. You don't give gifts back. And one of the women who had driven all the way from Alabama to pick up a vase that she had given 25 years before said, oh, no. And with tears pooling in her eyes, she said, I'll treasure this, and I will remember your sister as long as I live. Jesus, in a beautiful, beautiful way, had a, a meal with his disciples that he loved. And he instituted that meal as a memorial. 
He said, every, every once in a while, when you gather together as my followers, I want you to enjoy a symbolic meal together. And I want you to remember me. This meal includes a symbol of the blood of Jesus Christ. And the blood of Jesus Christ was shed to ratify or to make official a promise, a covenant that God makes to His people. It is a high and holy thing to see every time we take of that cup. We remember that Jesus Christ shed His blood in, to ratify a covenant promise actually to Israel that He is allowing the church to get in on according to the book of Hebrews in chapter 8. In a mystery I'm not sure I fully understand, but a beautiful one altogether. Forgive me for my overusing Bill Gothard illustrations today. This is going to be Bill Gothard illustration number two, and then I'll take a break for a few weeks. Bill um, ran this organization, and, and he, he um, met with people. All, he's a single man, so he would meet with people from early in the morning until late at night, 10 and 11 o'clock at night, and people would be coming and going in his office all the time, and they would be asking him for things, and he would be making promises to them. And he found out that people would hang on his words and they would hold him to his promises. And after a while, he realized that it was going to be really a serious thing for him to make sure that he didn't break any of the promises that he made. And so he got an amanuensis, a a man assistant, a young man. He would always have a young man working with him. And on more than one occasion, he would say to me, Ken, his number one job is to listen to the promises that I make and write them down, exactly what I promised I would do, and to see to it that I keep the promises that I make. And you and I probably can't hire an assistant, but we have the Spirit of God as our assistant, our paraclete, the one alongside that would say, in the power of Christ, keep the promises that you make. Make promises keep the promises, but more than that, even to recognize that our God is a promise-making and a promise-keeping God. Christy Powers tells a story about her father, who was not a sentimental man. He was not an emotional man. She always believed her parents had a strong marriage and a happy one, but as the youngest of four children, just before she turned 16, her belief in the strength of her parents' marriage was tested. Her dad got surly and angry and aloof and removed, and he started coming home late from work and avoiding chores around the house and not speaking and kindly. And it wasn't long after that that this strain surfaced in a uh, separation. Her dad was going to leave mom and the family. And um, they set the siblings down, and they said, this isn't working out, and I'm going to leave. And I want you to know it doesn't mean I don't love you, and, uh, but it's just, I feel like it's the right thing to do. So that night, Christy Powers went to her room. And she got out a piece of paper and a pen. And she wrote her dad a long letter, appealing to her dad to keep his promise to the family. She said, Dad, no matter what you do, I'll still love you. And I will always be your little girl. But you promised you would stay with us. And so then she just very gently included a photograph of herself in that letter. And then before her dad left, early the next morning, she slipped out through his car. And she put the letter in his bag. 
a letter appealing to her dad to keep his promise. As we approach the Lord's Supper tonight, it would be really good for our souls to remind ourselves that our God is eager to make promises to his people and absolutely unerring and flawless in the deliverance of the promises that he made. Let's think about that as we enjoy communion tonight. Our Heavenly Father, tonight we thank You for Your Son, Christ Jesus. We ask You to forgive us for the times that we have been involved in foolish talking. The times that we have joked about things that are holy and and, and the, the times when we haven't been careful with our tongue, they are so many. And as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it is with a consciousness that our righteousness cannot be our own, but yours and your sons, the Lord Jesus, who's clothed us in the pure white garment of his righteousness. And But we do ask, Lord, that you'd work within us, that we would talk like people who live on the light side. And Lord, as we partake now of this bread, which reminds us that you didn't just send, though you did send, you came. And you didn't just come in, um, you didn't come in, a way that we couldn't sympathize with, but you sympathized with us by coming in the form of a man, a mystery of the incarnation, which we probably none of us have ever really fully understood as we ought. We thank you for it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In Hebrews thirteen twenty and 21 say, Now may the God of peace, who brought up our Lord Jesus from the dead, that great shepherd of the sheep, the blood of the everlasting covenant make you complete in every good work to do His will, working in you what is well-pleasing in His sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. When we think of uh, uh, the death of Christ, we think of His broken body, His shed blood. We're to, we're to associate the blood with, with death and death with sin. But we're also to associate the blood with the, that which ratifies the covenant that God makes, the everlasting covenant, or His promise. Hebrews 10.23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. And today we probably have been conscious that we have broken promises and that we've been too light with our words, but, never, but He never is. Scriptures say, I received from the Lord that which also I delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he said, Take it, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father in heaven, we are so grateful and so thankful for all that you've done. By your great grace and mercy, You've extended to us life, eternal life, through the blood of your own Son, Jesus Christ. That which the, the blood of bulls and goats could not do has been accomplished through His very own blood. And so we, we long to praise You and love You. And we desire our lives to live in accordance with Your character. That our speech, even the very words that we say, and our actions and our thoughts, 
would reveal you to the world, that we would glorify you truly by what we say and do. This is our longing. And so I pray, Father, we pray together as your people here at Evangel Baptist Church, that this time of remembrance would truly uh, not be forgotten. But throughout the remainder of this week and, and on through this month and through this year, we would constantly be reminded as an act of worship that kind of God we serve, you, be the one whom we worship through our lives. And so we ask, Father, that uh, this new covenant that you have offered through the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, would not be forgotten. It would be forever uh, in the forefront of our mind. We pray that you would now cause us to, uh, to think through these things that are not in alignment with your character. And we repent of these sins. We repent, God, because we want to, we want to honor you, we want to come before you as pure and holy vessels made righteous only by, by the blood of your Son, Christ. Through his matchless and powerful name we pray. You're partaking of the elements of communion. It's uh, a testimony that you are a believer. It's a testimony that you're saying, I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. Are you a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you act like a believer in Jesus Christ? Do you, do you talk like a believer in Jesus Christ? You talk. And um, tonight would be probably a wonderful thing, a touch, a taste of revival an aroma of revival. If the people that have heard you speak in a way that's not pleasing to the Lord, if you'd go to them and humble yourself and seek their forgiveness and seek the Lord's forgiveness and start over and ask God to anoint your tongue and use it for His sake. Paul said in this passage in 1 Corinthians uh, 11, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Christy Powers came home from school two or three weeks after her dad left and found her mom sitting at the table with tears running down her face. And her mom said, what is it that you wrote to your dad in that letter? What did you write? And Christy really couldn't say. Her mother says, well, it doesn't really matter. Whatever it was, you know your dad who never cries. He called me and he was crying. And he asked me if I, he could come over and we could talk. And Christy's mom and dad reconciled. And they stayed together in a strengthening marriage for 37 years until her father passed away of a heart attack. They were going through his things and they found, of course, the letter that she wrote and they found among his things the photograph that she had given to him. I, I like that story because it ends well. And you and I both know that not all stories end well. I like that story because something about that appeals to me. The idea that a man could be, that could be asked to keep his promise 
and that He would come back home and that He would keep His promise and that God would bless him. And after his death, his daughter could write about it. But it may not be that way for you. You may have had people break promises to you in the most grievous way. A husband or a wife. A father or a mother. An employee or a child. I will just tell you this. When you come to the communion table, can I remind you? God, your God, your Heavenly Father, He is a promise keeper. He makes promises. He keeps His promises. And they cost Him His blood. He keeps His promises. That's our God. Isn't it sweet to be able to trust in Jesus? Hymn book number 450. I trust you will be go out into the world on Monday as a representative of the Lord Jesus Christ with a grace in your life, with a, with a gracious spirit, and with a tongue full of good words. Let's stand together. Sing number 450 as we go home.